Good morning, everyone. How are we? Good, good, good to see you. Uh, my name is R.D. I'm one of the pastors here on, uh, on staff, and it's great, great to be with you, great to be back with you. My family and I have been in and out, mostly, uh, mostly out on the vacation doing some work. We went uh, up to Washington. I taught at a, uh, a high school camp up there in a place called uh, Whidbey Island, which is a gorgeous, a gorgeous place. And uh, then we spent a few days in Seattle and uh, got to teach some high schoolers about Jesus, which is just always a joy. And uh, saw some come to faith and some get baptized that week. So it was just amazing. And uh, we brought our girls up there to camp, which is now, I think, the thing that they love the most in their lives. And I think they've been disappointed every day since coming back because we don't live in a cabin and there's not a playground right there. And so we, we all, all these amazing things that that we did uh, in beautiful Northwest. Uh, went, saw the beauty of the land and where the, the girls were playing with the kids, they were playing games, all, everything. But I think maybe their favorite part or what they get the most excited about when we talk about, do you remember camp? Do you remember all the things that that we did and like, yeah. And like their favorite thing, like the whole probably 10 days was when they got to ride the shuttle bus. <laughs> the bus you take from like the rent-a-car facility to the airport. I mean, they do like, we'll talk about, hey, remember camp? Yeah, camp. We love it. Do you remember the kids you played with? Yeah, remember the kids we played with? Remember the airplane we took out there? We love the airplane. Remember the shuttle bus? Shuttle bus! <laughs> shuttle! Like, shuttle. Yeah, the shuttle bus that took us to the airport. It was amazing. Shuttle bus. And now every time they see a bus, they just point to it and want to get on it. And so anyway, that, that was just, if you see them, just yell shuttle bus. And they will run up to you. And they will be your best friend forever. So that's your, that was for free. That has nothing to do with really anything uh, this morning. But you're welcome. Um, we're in a series in the Apostles' Creed, and uh, we are continuing that today. The Apostles' Creed is uh, about a 2,000-year-old creed that was based on the Apostles' teaching, hence it's called the Apostles' Creed, but it's based in the Bible. And it's really a, uh, the fundamentals, the foundation of the Christian faith. It, it gives you a vocabulary for what Christianity is all about. Like when you learn a new language, you learn the fundamentals and the foundation of the language first before you get into the more advanced subjects. And the Apostles' Creed is like that. It's giving you the language uh, for uh, Christianity. It's helping you learn what it's about. If uh, you go maybe to the beach and you have a, a sifter of some kind and you want to sift out all the sand and only get the nuggets which are left, the Apostles' Creed is that sifter uh, by which the essence of Christianity is distilled into one document so that you can know what, what's the foundation of what Christians believe. If I call myself a Christian, what should I affirm about who God is and who Christ is and, and who the Spirit is? And that's what the Apostles' Creed is. There's, there's so much the Bible teaches which we we need to know as Christians, but when it comes down to the essence of what the Bible teaches, the Apostles' Creed is about as good of a place to start as any in terms of learning what Christianity is about. And, and last week, Mark began uh, the section of the creed that talks explicitly about Jesus with his incarnation. Jesus Christ was born. And this week, uh, we are basically doing everything else in his life. In the next 40 minutes. So his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his return. So this should be easy, right? This will be easy. No problem in 40 minutes to get through all of his, all of his life. And so there are uh, four points to the message that are going to talk about from, from the creed. And so number one, uh, Jesus Christ suffered and died 
That's point number one. Uh, secondly, uh, the second point is Jesus Christ that he rose. The third point uh, is that he ascended. And number four is uh, that he is coming. So he suffered and died. He rose. He ascended. And he is coming again. So those are the, those are the four points. And so uh, with that, each one of those could be its own message, right? Each one of those could be its own sermon series, much less in we're going to just nibble at it here. And so this, this, this sermon is going to be like kind of a tapas style sermon. So anybody like tapas? Anybody enjoy what tapas? Does anyone know what tapas are? Okay, you're going to be like, what is he talking about? So uh, you can go uh, and to a restaurant and serve tapas. And uh, you get just small uh, pieces of the food. So, so if you want to go to a restaurant and get steak and potatoes, power to you. Right? Great, great for you. You just get, you get the full thing right there. But, but when you go to a tapas restaurant, you just get a little bit of, of multiple different things. And so it's like a taste. And sometimes it can be like super small. So if my wife and I go, you can sometimes just get like one bite of something. And then they just they trick you. And so then you have to get more and you have to order more of these things. But everything, you just get multiple things. You can try so many different things, but you just get a little nibble at it. And this sermon is basically about the life of Jesus going to be basically tapas style. So if you had Apostles' Creed and tapas in the sermon this morning, then you get points. Points for you for including those things. We're, we're just going to nibble at parts of who Jesus is with the hopes that you would explore more about what each one of these points mean. How, how they tell us about who Jesus is and how they tell us about what it means to be in Jesus. What it means for our life. The Apostle Creed is talking about this, this morning. And so with that said, let us... Get after it. Number one, Jesus Christ, he suffered and he died. And this comes from the part of the creed, which has this sentence. It says that he suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified, died, and buried. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. Point number one, Jesus Christ suffered and died. And before we, we do that, we want to just briefly say, why is Pontius Pilate in there? Why? Why? they? There's no other biblical character in the creed. Why is Pontius Pilate so special that he gets to be in the creed? Why, why does the Apostles' Creed include him? And he, here's why. Because the Apostles' Creed wants it to be very clear that Jesus Christ lived and suffered in history. That it's not a fairy tale. This is not a myth. This is not, it doesn't say that he suffered, uh, was crucified and died. It says he actually suffered under Pontius Pilate. It roots the story of Jesus in a historical reality that Jesus Christ, he actually literally lived and walked on the earth. And Pontius Pilate actually was the governor of Rome, governor of Judea as part of the Roman empire. And he, he was overseeing everything that was going on in the part of, of Judea where, where Jesus lived. And so just beginning with this, one thing we can say is, that Jesus Christ is a part of history, that he really lived. He's a real person. And the creed wants to just anchor us to know that it's not just fantasy or myth. It doesn't say once upon a time. It says Pontius Pilate. So that you know, it, it really, it has teeth to it. You could go back in history and actually find him, if you will. So he suffered under Pontius Pilate. And, and Jesus suffered. He suffered, not just at the end of his life, but throughout his whole life. He suffered. Um, he didn't have a comfortable life. He didn't have an easy life. He had a difficult life. Isaiah 53, 3 puts it this way. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. 
He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. So a man of suffering, uh, he's familiar with pain, not, not just uh, he suffered at the very end of his life, though he did mightily, but that his whole life was filled with suffering and with pain and with misery. And why was it filled with suffering? Why was it filled with misery? Because he wants to identify with us, with humanity, because we suffer and we have pain. And if Jesus Christ doesn't enter into that, then how can he become like us fully? And so because he wants to enter into the mess of humanity, he suffers. He has a life of suffering. He, he has no place to lay his head. He has no money. He has basically no clothes. He has no possessions. All to identify with humanity. And that is what he does. And so his life, Jesus Christ, is, is familiar with suffering. It's familiar with suffering. And more, more than that, at the end of his life, he suffered for us. In the most profound way. First Peter 3.18 puts it this way. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Jesus Christ suffered as your substitutionary sacrifice. That's what this verse says, that he dies in our place for our sin. That we, you and I are the unrighteous in our rebellion from God. We, we deserve exile from God. But Jesus Christ steps forward and takes the blame that we deserve and puts it on himself. Right to, to the point of it is to bring us to God. He suffered for sins. He suffered for sinners. He stands in our place, though we are guilty, though there's condemnation. He stands in our place. I'll put it on me. Put it on my account. I will bear it. I will take it. Because no one actually is born a Christian. No one is born into a relationship with God. It's only by God's grace that we can come to know God. And Jesus Christ says, I want to do that. I want to suffer for my people. So they wouldn't have to suffer. They wouldn't have to have the true suffering, which is being separated from God. And so he restores our relationship to God by his suffering. But not only by his suffering, not only by his gruesome crucifixion, by which the God of the universe, in a sense, is stripped naked, has a crown thrust into his head and blood just poured down upon him hour after hour after hour as people mock him. Why does he do that? He does it to show the extent of his love. He doesn't just suffer for a few hours and they take him down from the cross and he goes on living his life. No, he goes all the way to the grave. The Apostles' Creed says that he suffered in a Pontius Pilate. He was crucified on the cross and he died. He actually died. He tasted death. He felt death. Jesus Christ actually went into the grave. His body was dead. It was dead. And get this, he tastes death so that you and I don't have to. So that all we have to taste is life. Hebrews puts it this way. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while. Now he's crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus tastes death. He experiences death. So that even when you die, it's only life. It's not the real death. It's not a death that can exile you from God. He takes death upon himself and he kills it. He and death stare each other in the face and death blinks. And Jesus Christ doesn't. And because he dies, when we die, we will live. He suffered, he was crucified, and he died. That's what the Apostles' Creed affirms. That's what the Bible affirms. And there are so many implications from this. I'm just going to draw out one about suffering. Because Jesus Christ suffered, it means that our suffering is not meaningless. It means it's not pointless. 
Paul puts it this way in Romans. He says, And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. We boast in our sufferings. Suffering is, in the Bible, basically a synonym for Christian. That there is going to be suffering in our life. And we all know this. We all suffer in many ways. Maybe not as many people around the world do because of persecution for their their faith, as many Christians have throughout history and do today. But we suffer in ways even still through through disease, uh, through through someone betraying us, through the loss or the death of a friend or a child or or a parent, through losing a job or through losing a friend. We all we all feel suffering. We all feel pain. We all feel uh, misery. Right? I've said it before. God guarantee you, God will give you more than you can handle. The Bible never says otherwise. God will give you more than you can handle. There are going to be things that come into your life, and you're going to try and handle them. And for a little bit, maybe you can. And then you're going to realize, I can't handle this. Right? This is so beyond me. The pain is too much. The person is too much. The situation is too much. Just in your local friend level. Much less, let's expand it to what's happening in our country or expand it to what's happening in the world. How can, you, how can we bear all of these things that well, we aren't supposed to? But there will be things that come into your life, and you will just, as I say, I can't bear this. And in that moment, we have to take it to the one who can. Only Jesus Christ suffered for you so that you can give your suffering to him. That, that because he suffered, our suffering can actually drive us into God's heart and change us. Right? Suffering, Paul says, produces things in your life. Suffering can be a servant in your life for the glory of God. It can be. Tim Keller, in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, he puts it this way. Christianity teaches that contra-fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. Contra-Buddhism, suffering is real. Contra-karma, suffering is often unfair. But contra-secularism, suffering is meaningful. There is a purpose to it. And if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. Like a nail, it can drive you into God's heart and then shoot you out into the world more humble, more filled with grace, more aware of God's sufficiency than you ever imagined. You do not know that God is all you need until he's all you have. And suffering produces that in us, doesn't it? Isn't it suffering that teaches us how sufficient God is? No one wakes up and says, I want to go through suffering today. And I'm not saying that you say that. (laughs) Lord, help me suffer today. But in a sense, it's suffering that God brings into our life that it might change us. And we can know that he is always walking with us through those things. Because Jesus Christ is the only God of any religion who ever suffered. All, all of the other gods, they stay above humanity. They're better than humanity, right? Humans are the low and the weak and the dirty. All, only in the gospel, only is Jesus the one who actually identifies with us, right? Whatever God or goddess, Greek philosophy, other religions, the gods are separated. They're on the mountain. And they say, if you try hard enough, if you climb the mountain strong enough, then maybe, 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 maybe you can actually approach us. But Jesus Christ says, I've come down the mountain. I've come down to the mountain for you. There's no other God who suffered. No other God who suffered. Edward Shalito was a World War I veteran. And he experienced hell that only those who've been to war know. 
when you've seen evil, when you've seen suffering, when you've seen death. And he, World War I was a horrific war, as all wars are, but this one is especially horrific. And he wrote a poem when he came home, and it was called Jesus of the Scars. And it's about Jesus, and part of the poem reads this way that he wrote. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds only God's wounds can speak, and not a god has wounds, but thou alone. Jesus Christ is the only God who is wounded for you, so that in your wounds you could know they have meaning. And one day they'll be healed. Why? Well, that's point number two. He rose. So if you feel, do we feel the weight? <laughs> oh, what a way to start the sermon off. <laughs> Suffering and death. And yet it's so essential, but it's not the end of the story. Point number two, he rose. This part of the creed says this. On the third day, he, Jesus, rose again from the dead. Okay, we can exhale. <laughs> There's hope. There is hope. See, D- Jesus Christ didn't just die as your example or as your inspiration. Every other person who has ever died, which is everyone else, can at best be an inspiration to you. At best, they could be an example, right? And we use language like this sometimes when a parent passes away or maybe a grandparent or even like a favored uh, leader or someone, and we say, now they're living in us, right? Now, granddad, you know, he's looking down on you and he's living inside of you and helping you become like him. Or, or if some national leader passes away, now we want to channel, right, their positivity or their vision into how we live, right? And we use language like this. And it's not necessarily wrong. I've used it myself. It's okay to say. But they don't really live inside of you, right? It's all external. You, you've got to try and in your own heart, try and be like them. They're just an example. They're just an inspiration. But Jesus Christ is more than an example. He's more than an inspiration. If he only dies and goes in the grave, then we could just say, well, he, he tried. He tried really hard. He took it to the Roman Empire. And we're going to do it too. We're going to take it to the empire. And that would be okay. So far as it goes. But it doesn't go that far, does it? We need someone who doesn't just die for us, but who rises for us. And Jesus Christ does that. He rises, he rises for us on the third day. What does that mean? It means so many things. Um, we're just going to hit a few. It means um, he rose to defeat death and sin. See, if there is no resurrection, the cross is meaningless. It's meaningless because it means that um, Jesus, God does not accept the offering of Jesus. When Jesus Christ goes to the cross and says, I give my life for sinners... The only way we know God accepts that is by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. And when Jesus Christ is raised from the dead by God, it means that the check cleared. It means that paid in full is now stamped across the universe. That God accepts the offering of Jesus. And so now we know that sin and death have been eradicated. That we have power over sin. That we have power over death. That's what the resurrection means. Secondly, it means that we have been raised right now spiritually. That's what the Bible says, that right now, Easter, Resurrection Sunday says, you have been raised right now spiritually. You are now a son or a daughter. You have life now, right? The point of Easter is not just that we get to go to heaven one day when we die, though that's true, but it's that heaven has come to our earth right now, 
right? Heaven has actually invaded earth right now. And so now we can live as citizens of heaven on the earth as new creation right now. We have new affection and new desire. We can serve God, not ourselves. We can love other people, not just ourselves. We can be generous and not selfish. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is living in us because resurrection power is flowing out of us. That's what Easter Sunday is about. It's not just we can sit here and wait for God to beam us up to heaven. Things are really bad here. I hope he beams me up soon. No, false, right? It's things are bad, and I've been sent into the world with the resurrecting power of Jesus to go put things right. That's what the, the second thing the resurrection means, right? This is what um, Paul says here in 1 Peter 1.3. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a, a living, not a dead hope, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's the resurrection which gives us new birth into a living hope. When we're born again, we're born again into the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And just as he rose from the dead, we right now can rise spiritually. The Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you, and you, though we still sin, though we still fall, we have a new power now, because the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Lives in you. That's true, whether you believe it or not, right? Or whether you feel it or not, it's true. It's so true. He rose to defeat death and sin. He rose so that we can rise now as new creations. And he rose so that one day you and I will rise physically and be with God forever. Emily's grandfather uh, passed away this week. And um, she went down to the funeral in Texas, uh, yes, uh, Friday. And uh, you know, it wasn't necessarily unexpected, but it was still sad, as they all are. And there was sorrow, and um, I, wasn't, I wasn't able to able to go, but, um, you know, Emily just read some beautiful things at, at his funeral and, um, we were in bed one night and, you know, there's just this sense of now, you know, he's gone. And for Emily's mom losing her dad, just that sense of he's no longer here. And, and many of you have been to funerals, um, which are all sad. Some are, are even more, more sad. And I was able because of, you know, we know Bill's faith in the Lord, able to look at her and just say, Emily, you'll see him again. You'll see him again. He'll have a new body. He'll have the personality that he's always meant to have. Right? And he had, uh, he like helped restore World War II Jeeps, which are just the first time I met him, and he showed me his Jeeps. I thought, I am not a man. I am. I, like, the first time I met him, I'm like, how am I going to date his, da- his granddaughter? Like, he's just showing me his World War II Jeeps he restores. What do I do? I watch TV. Like, this is not the greatest generation. So I. And he was just such a good, he was such a good man. And I, I just, I said, Emily, maybe he'll be, you know, he'll drive in his Jeep up there on the streets of gold. You know, who knows what the Lord may or may not allow in the, the new heaven and, and new earth. But I, 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 I just was able to say with full conviction, you'll see him again and he'll see you again. Right. And for, for all of you who are in Christ, you'll see him again. Right. Or for the first time. <laughs> See, and if, and if that, like, some, someone may say, well, of course you say things. You, you've got to comfort people. You've got to help people. That is not comforting if it's not true. That is a lie. That's actually one of the worst things you could ever say. Maybe, right? The resurrection hope is not maybe, I hope somehow in the end things work out. The resurrection hope is a sure and certain hope of the resurrection of the dead. That one day you and I will face Jesus Christ and he will embrace us. And because he rose, we will rise. New bodies, new life. 
he rose. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, the New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits, as 1 Corinthians 15, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man, Adam. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. Easter Sunday was the first day of the new world. And you and I are invited to be a part of it as the church. He rose. He rose. Thirdly, like I said, tapas. We've got to keep moving. He ascended. This part of the creed says this. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Now this, what does this mean? This may be where things are getting fuzzy for us. Because you may say, okay, suffered and died. I've kind of heard that. I know what that means on the cross for my sin. Okay, Uh, resurrection. He rose. I think I know what that means. He ascended. He went up into the sky. And that, that kind of ends my thoughts on the ascension. I don't really know what it means or what difference it makes. If I were to ask you, Jesus Christ ascended, he sits at the right hand of God. What does that mean for your life right now? Most of us would probably stare at me in the face and just say, I am not, oh no, Jesus. <laughs> right? We, 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 and to be honest, for a long time in my life, I had no idea what it meant. I re- if you asked me, I really would have been like, he, he's up with God and, and things are happening up there. And really, that would be the extent. It didn't have any power in my life, but the ascension of Jesus is essential. Uh, the resur- without the, um, the resurrection, the cross is meaningless. And without the ascension, the resurrection is meaningless. Jesus Christ ascended. He, when he rose from the dead, he had spent 40 days of ministry on earth, hanging out with people, healing people, weeping with people. And then 40 days after he rose, he ascended into heaven. And Mark sixteen nineteen puts it this way. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, that's the disciples, final marching orders, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. Which if you just read that sentence is almost unbelievable, isn't it? Like we read it and it's like, okay, what's the next verse? It's like he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. Next verse. It's amazing. What, what does it mean? Now, when you and I think about ascension, we probably think Jesus Christ, something like he gets on the Superman cape and he goes up into the heavens and the Shekinah glory envelops him and he's gone. But the point of the ascension of Jesus is not about um, he's Superman. It's not about altitude. It's not about, well, look how high he can go. The point of the ascension is that Jesus Christ is now becoming the true king. He's ascending to the throne by which now he rules over the entire universe. You know, one day Prince Charles will become king of England and they'll have an enthronement ceremony and he'll become the king. Now, he's not going to some other place to become the king. He's just going to walk into, and they're going to put him on the chair, and he's going to become the king right there. And in the ascension, that's exactly what happens to Jesus. The ascension is about Jesus Christ becoming the king of the universe. The ascension of Jesus is the detonator, which allows Christ's healing power to flood the universe. And without it, it doesn't happen. So three quick things the ascended Christ does for us. Um, The ascended Christ is supremely powerful. He's powerful over all of the cosmos. He's right now, he rules and reigns at the right hand of God. He's not sleeping. He, he, he knows what's going on. Jesus Christ is not in heaven, pacing, anxious, wondering what happened. How, how could this happen over here? Holy Spirit, you dropped the ball over here. What's going on? Okay, we got to fix this. We get, no, he's, he's at rest. He's seated. 
at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning over all things, supreme over all things, Colossians 1. Now, it may not always seem like that. That's because he hasn't returned yet, but he is. He's just the right hand of God, and, and right, right now, this second, Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God, right now. And right now. And in a week from now. And in 10,000 years from now. And in 10 billion years from now. And in 10 trillion years from now. Jesus Christ will be sitting at the right hand of God. Ruling and reigning over the universe. Because he ascended. The ascended Christ is supremely powerful. Secondly, the ascended Christ is supremely personal. Only in Christianity do we have personal access to God. No other religion offers you personal access, like sure and certain personal access to God. Because the Bible says Jesus Christ is our intercessor. Right? He sits at the right hand of God, interceding to God on our behalf. So, like telling God, RD, he's mine. I paid for his sin. Right? That we can actually speak to God, we can talk to God, because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sin, and he opened up access to God. And because Jesus Christ is at his right hand, because he ascended, we can know that God hears us, that God accepts us. If Christ does not ascend, we don't know that. We don't know that. See, there's also an accuser who is also speaking to God. And the Romans talks about this. And the accuser is always going to charge us as guilty. R.D., you're filled with sin. How can you even preach? How can God accept you? And then you have Jesus Christ, the advocate, who sits at God's right hand, the place of ultimate power, and says, yeah, you know what? R.D. did do all those things, but he's mine. He's mine. I'm not surprised by anything he's done. I know it all. I know a lot more, but I paid for his sin. So, Satan, you can shut it. Right? Because he's great. <laughs> there we go. And I think... Um, that's true. Yeah, and you, and you, and you don't, maybe don't have to. You can clap if you want, but you should in your heart. Right? If, if I say something like that and you're like, okay, wow. Okay, what's the next point? Then, 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 then. You, you, we've got to lock ourselves into the realities that are the most real things. You know, whenever I get up to preach, I feel like I always am just so reminded of my sin each week. You know, when, I, when I'm getting ready for a message, or I, I just feel like that's when the enemy just reminds me. And I can sometimes just feel like, how am I getting up here when I just did this, or I said this, or I dropped the ball here? And I remind this great um, line which says, Well may the accuser war of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. Right? The enemy will always be saying to you, guilty, condemned. And you just say back to him, Romans 8, 1, Therefore... There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus Christ sits at God's right hand and says, R.D., he's mine. He's covered. My sacrifice was sufficient. And God says, yes, it is finished. Thirdly, the ascended Christ is supremely present. The disciples were so heartbroken when Jesus Christ left. Can you imagine? He's telling them, it's better if I go. The Holy Spirit's coming. And they're thinking, one, who's the Holy Spirit? <laughs> And secondly, how is it better? You know, a, a poor example, but just to get a bit of it, like when one of your great friends moves away and you're thinking, how is this better? How is this good news? Why, why, if you, it would be better if you just stayed with us and we all live together, right? That's what we say when our friends move away. Like, let's just all live on a cul-de-sac together and just be friends forever, right? It's like, well, one day we will, but not, not yet. But there's this, that, that sadness, which is human friends. Can you imagine Jesus Christ? You're walking with him for three years and he says, guys, I'm leaving. They're thinking, how is this better? And Jesus Christ says it's better because the Holy Spirit is coming to live inside of you. 
And, he, and he's going to give you a courage and a confidence that you can never have. Because Jesus Christ is not omnipresent. God is, but Jesus Christ isn't. Jesus Christ cannot be in two places at once. It's like when I'm watching my girls and they go into different rooms, I have to make a judgment call. Which one is more volatile at this moment? <laughs> Which one may hurt themselves more? I've got to pick her. I can't be in two places, right? The Holy Spirit inside of you is better than Jesus Christ beside you. Because Jesus Christ is, is human. But the Holy Spirit living inside of you is the gift God gives to us to remind us of who Christ is, to encourage us, to help us. The Holy Spirit gives you a courage in this life that you could never have elsewhere. In uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, the voyage of the Don Treader, uh, Lucy, who's one of the uh, girls in the book, is on, a, on, on the Don Treader. She's on this boat, this ship, and they're sailing into this huge storm, and it's massive, and it's terrifying, and it's just crazy. And um, she is terrified, and all the sailors are terrified. Yeah, have you ever been like going to a storm in a plane or in a, or in a car, and it's just like this? It's just oh my goodness, this is terrifying. But we're going in it, and this boat is going straight into it. And Aslan is the lion in the Chronicles of Narnia, and he is the uh, like the Christ-like figure in in Narnia. And Lucy is looking at this storm, and she whispers over the side of the boat. C.S. Lewis writes, she says, Aslan, Aslan. If you ever loved us, please send help now. And as they start going into the heart of the storm, this is what C.S. Lewis writes happens next. He says, Lucy looked along the beam and presently saw something in it. It circled three times around the mast and then perched for an instant on the ship. It called out in a strong, sweet voice, which seemed to be words, though no one understood them. No one but Lucy knew that as it circled the mast, it had whispered to her, Courage, dear heart. And the voice she felt sure was Aslan's. And with a voice, a delicious smell breathed in her face. In, in a sense, the Holy Spirit is the answer to the question, God, God, if you ever loved us, please send help. And the Holy Spirit rushes into our hearts and says, courage. Have courage. Not in your own self, not in your own strength, not just I'm going to be strong because I am strong. No, but have courage because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Because whatever you're walking through, the Holy Spirit is actually walking with you through it. And so you can face the storm, you can face the darkness because the Holy Spirit is there for you. The advocate who is right there with you. And if Jesus Christ doesn't ascend to God the Father, the Holy Spirit doesn't descend. And in a sense, we're left on our own. We're left on our own. The ascension gives you courage that nothing else can. And the ascension also does one more thing. It whets our appetite for his return. That's the final point. He is coming. So Jesus Christ, he suffered and died. He rose. He ascended. And he's coming. The final part of the creed that we'll talk about this morning is that he will come again to judge the living and the dead from heaven. He'll come from heaven to judge the living and the dead. Well, this um, judgment may not seem like the best way to end it. You know, it doesn't really fill us with the warm fuzzies, does it? <laughs> Savior, yes. Lover, yes. Shepherd, yes. Judge, oh no. <laughs> not many people get excited to go see the judge, do we? <laughs> and what I want to tell you just briefly with the time we have left is that the judgment of God is good news. It's great news. Here's what I mean. 
If there is no judgment coming, if Jesus never comes back as a judge, then in a sense, there's no one on the throne. There's no one really who's going to make everything right except for us. If, if Jesus Christ doesn't come back to judge everything, and when I say judge, I mean he's going to put everything right. He's going to make everything right. When he comes back, that's what he's doing. And if he doesn't do that, then evil wins. Uh, sin wins. Right? Human trafficking remains. Racism remains. Poverty remains. Abuse remains. All these things just keep going and keep growing if Jesus Christ doesn't come back one day and put everything right. And if we don't have that hope, then we're going to become judges ourselves. And how well does that work out? When we say, I have the right, I'm going to pick up the sword and do, do what's right for my country, for my family. That's when things start to get scary, don't they? The way to nonviolence, the way to be people of reconciliation is to believe that one day God is coming back as a judge and he's going to put everything right. Miroslav Volf is a Croatian uh, professor at Yale. And he lived through the Balkan Wars, and he's experienced war and death. And he wrote a great book where his basic premise was nonviolence only happens when you believe that God is coming back to judge. And I'll read a, a longer excerpt, but I think it's powerful. He writes this about letting God be the judge and why that's right. He says this, the practice of nonviolence requires belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with many in the West. But imagine speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them, we should not retaliate? Why not? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of innocent, the idea will invariably die like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. What is he saying? He's saying... Humans are going to take up the sword and avenge all that they can if there is not the good news of God as judge coming. And we may say in America, this is crazy, but they don't say it in Syria, and they don't say it in Palestine, and they don't say it in Iraq. Why shouldn't we get vengeance? Why shouldn't we put everything? Look what happened to us. And then we say God is coming, and he is an impartial judge. He is a good judge. He's going to make everything right. And so then the question remains, though, well, what, what, what if everything's not right in our hearts? What if we, what if we when he comes, how, how can we stand in God's presence when he comes as judge? Because he's not just coming to judge the entire earth, but human hearts. And that's where, if we even want to play the comparison game, well, I'm not saying I'm as bad as my neighbor, but I don't know if I could stand in God's presence with, with my life. When he comes as judge, the only way that we can stand secure is if we have found shelter under Jesus Christ. And the way that happens is that Jesus Christ is both the judge and he sits in judgment. He becomes judge. When Jesus Christ comes to earth the first time, he doesn't come to bring judgment, he comes to bear it. 
He comes to take it upon himself. Everyone wanted him to just bring the fire down, bring the rain down, take everything, just scorch the entire earth. And here, here comes Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey weeping. And they're thinking, how is this making everything right? And they see him on a cross naked. And they're thinking, how is this the king? How is he doing anything right now? He's just being, he's being killed. He's being slaughtered. Yes, he was for you, for me. So that when Jesus Christ comes again, filled with glory, we don't have to hide. We can smile. That's what we can do because he bore the judgment. And if we are in him, we will not be judged. We will pass from death to life. Now that's amazing. The Bible says that there are two thieves on the cross. Two men who took things which didn't belong to them. I had a professor in seminary who said, oh, but there were three. Jesus Christ was a thief too. He took something that didn't belong to him. Your sin. He took it upon himself. So that when he comes, and he is coming, you can celebrate and clap and cheer. Because you'll know you'll be with him. You don't have to be afraid. And you can say with Psalm 98, which is written about the second coming, it's what... um, it's what joy of the world is based on. And not to burst anyone's bubble, but joy of the world uh, is written about the second coming, not about Christmas. <laughs> Though we can still sing it at Christmas, it's fine. But it's actually written about when Jesus Christ comes again as king. And it's based on Psalm 98, which says this. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord. With the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn, shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and his people with equity, with equality. Jesus is coming and we can celebrate. We can be overjoyed because we don't have to seek vengeance. We don't have to be the judges. We can let him do it and we can live for him right now now and know that one day one day we will be able to sing joy to the world as as well joy to the world the lord has come let earth receive her king let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing and heaven and nature sing and heaven and heaven and nature sing right and we'll be able to sing heaven and nature will be singing and you and i will be singing as well but not just with our lips with our lives to jesus christ our maker our healer our brother our savior our king our leader our our shepherd our all in all our our everything we'll be singing to him our substitute he died in your place he suffered and died as your substitute he rose as your savior He ascended as your personal and powerful king, and he's coming again as your righteous judge. And when he comes, you will become like him. And to him we will be singing, and we will be clapping, and we will be celebrating. And that's what this part of the Apostles' Creed is all about. Let's pray. Father, what a taste of just a few facets of how beautiful your son Jesus Christ is. And I pray for everyone here that maybe there was a part that we could sink our teeth more into, the suffering or the resurrection or the ascension or the return. We need all of it, Lord. It's all one story of your grace. I pray for everyone here that wherever we are, maybe the Holy Spirit just needs to wake us up. Maybe just needs to revive us right now. And I pray that, Lord, you would send revival in our hearts. Bring us back to you, Lord. Help us abide in you. Oh, Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. 
who right now is at your right hand interceding for us. And that's why I can even pray to you right now. And that's why you hear us and you long to hear from your people. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who ever liveth and reigneth for us. We long for his return in his name. And all God's people said, amen.